Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're listening to the Irish Times. In June 2019, Conor Gallagher writes, Anna Creasel murder trial, the complete story. Listeners, this is the second instalment in a five-part series. The full series can be found on the NOAA app under the story titled Anna Creasel murder trial. The search. Shortly after 5.30pm, Geraldine texted her daughter a two-word message. Home, now. There was no response. She talked it over with Patrick before sending another message a few minutes later. Answer me now or I'm calling the police. The part about the police was just to get Anna's attention, Geraldine later explained. She was conflicted. She knew Anna had only been gone for half an hour and felt like a paranoid mother, but nonetheless, she was extremely worried. Geraldine walked down to the park. She could see children playing and adults walking their dogs, but no sign of Anna. After dinner, she went out looking for Anna in the car, driving around the various estates. Anna loved to go for long walks, so she could have been anywhere in the area. Once she got home, Geraldine and Patrick went on Facebook to find out Boy B's surname. They knew him vaguely, but had no idea where he lived or who his parents were. Geraldine rang around trying to find out his address without success. She and Patrick went to the house of John Cribben, a retired detective and friend, for advice. He told them to go straight to the Garda. At that point, Anna had been gone for four hours. The parents went straight to Leakslip Garda station, where Geraldine explained it was highly unusual for Anna to not get in touch. She told Gardaí her daughter was a communicator. She would always respond. Even if she said she was not talking to you, she would respond to tell you she wasn't talking to you. Anna's Irish and Russian passports were still at home and she hadn't eaten since lunch, she added. Gardaí took Geraldine seriously, but there was no reason to be immediately concerned. Every week, Gardaí received dozens of reports of missing children, the vast majority turn up within a few hours. Their first job was to visit the house of Boy B after locating his address on the Pulse system. Gartha Connor Muldoon went to the house that evening where Boy B told him he had called for Anna that day, that they had walked in the park and that he had left her company there at 5.40pm. It was the first of dozens of lies he would tell investigators. The next day, Anna's family rose early to resume the search. Joined by friends and family members, they walked the local area and spoke to anyone they could think of who might know where Anna was. By now, Gardaí were also worried and a missing person investigation began in earnest. Sergeant John Dunn was tasked with returning to Boy B's house to question him further. 
This time, Boy B told the Garda he had called for Anna the previous day on behalf of his friend, Boy A. Anna had a crush on Boy A, but he wasn't interested and wanted to meet up with her to tell her, Boy B said. He said he brought Anna to the park where she met Boy A before leaving them and returning home to do his homework. Don brought Boy B to the park so he could show him exactly where he went with Anna. Boy B showed the Garda where they had entered the park, where they had met Boy A and where he had left the two of them to talk. The Garda marked all these locations using the GPS function on his Tetra radio before dropping the boy home. Meanwhile, a Garda family liaison officer was appointed to keep Anna's family informed about the search. Standard procedure at this stage was to issue a media appeal. Anna's parents consented and provided some photographs of their daughter, including one of her wearing the distinctive black and white hoodie. It was in late afternoon on Tuesday, May 15th, when the wider public first learned Anna Kriegel's name. Gardi are seeking the public's help in tracing 14-year-old Anastasia Kriegel, who was last seen at her home in Leakslip, County Kildare, at 5pm on Monday the 14th of May, 2018, the press release stated. Anastasia is described as 5 foot 8, black shoulder-length hair, sallow skin and slim build. Gardi send out missing person alerts almost daily, In the week previous to Anna's death, three missing person alerts, all relating to teenagers, were sent out. All were later located safe and well. After the appeal went out, potential leads began pouring into Gardaí, all of which had to be chased down. One caller said he had seen her on the other side of the city in Dundrum. Another told Gardaí they had seen Anna in the departures area of Dublin Airport. One of the more promising leads came from a local woman who said her daughter had seen Anna on the morning of the 15th by a nearby cul-de-sac. Gardie followed up and discovered a schoolmate of Anna lived on the cul-de-sac and that he hadn't attended school that day. But a search of the boy's house revealed nothing and the lead turned out to be a dead end. Back in Lucan, Dunn and his colleagues continued to comb the local area. After walking the park with Boy B, the Garda decided to search along the railway line, but found nothing. As Don was walking back, he was stopped by a man and his son. The man had heard about Anna going missing and suggested the Garda check the back of the local sewage plant, as teenagers tended to hang around there. It was only later that day that Don realised this man was Boy A's father, and the teen with him was Boy A. At that stage, both boys were being treated as witnesses, not suspects. Gardy had no reason to believe they had hurt Anna or even that Anna had been hurt at all. But because they were the last ones to see her, any information they could provide was vital. On Tuesday afternoon, a decision was taken to bring Boy B back to the park, this time with Boy A. The boys led the way as Dunn and Sergeant Dengus Hussey followed along with Boy A's father. As they walked, Dunn noticed Boy B was leading them on a different route to one he showed them earlier. The boys came to a stop on a path near the BMX track in the park. Both Dunn and Hussey saw them exchange what they would later describe as a glance or look. 
It was the first indication the boys weren't telling the Gardaí everything. It was decided that formal statements should be taken so they could clarify their exact movements. Both boys were taken to Lucan Garda station with their parents. Boy B told Gardaí the same story he gave earlier. I have no clue what happened to her, he said, adding the first time he heard something was wrong was when Gardaí called to him the night before. Boyer gave Gardaí a detailed statement about his movements. He said Boy B was one of his best friends and had called over to his house after school. Boyer was doing his chores, so they arranged to meet in the park a while later. When Boy B arrived in the park, he was with Anna, a girl he knew from school, but not that well. He told Gardaí, At one stage, Anna said to me, I have something to ask you. I was wondering if you wanted to go out with me. I was surprised. It came out of nowhere. I kind of knew she liked me because she kind of asked me out before. He said he wanted to tell her gently that he didn't want to go out with her. I said, I'm sorry, but I'm not interested. She didn't answer. She said nothing. She walked off. She looked annoyed and sad at the same time. By this stage, Boy B had also left, Boy A said. He walked on alone until he was attacked by two males. One grabbed him by the shoulder and pulled him to the ground and both started kicking him, he claimed. The attack ended when Boy A got up and kicked one of them in the head, causing both to flee. Garthy were somewhat sceptical of the story. The boy did have injuries which were consistent with an assault. His arm and leg were both injured and he had cuts to his face, but something didn't feel right about his account. In particular, his description of defeating his attacker with a kick to the head sounded more like teenage fantasy than reality. Nevertheless, Garthy were assigned to investigate the alleged assault. Boyer was taken to Gartha HQ where he helped investigators compile a photo fit of the attackers. Nobody matching the photo fit was seen by any of the witnesses in the park that day. CCTV cameras also failed to pick up anyone matching the description. The following day, Wednesday, May 16th, the search was kicked up a gear. There were now serious concerns that Anna may have been harmed or even killed. Inspector Mark O'Neill of Lucan Garda Station was assigned to lead the missing person investigation and all members coming on duty in stations in North Dublin and Kildare were briefed on the matter. Specialist search teams were brought in as well as the Garda Sub-Aqua Unit which searched the Liffey and other bodies of water in the area. The Civil Defence provided 60 members to aid in the operation. The Garda Crime and Security Branch were tasked with analysing mobile phone traffic in an effort to find out Anna's movements. A mannequin or something terrible. Her body was found in an abandoned farmhouse in Lucan, County Dublin on May 17, 2018. Glenwood House was built sometime around 1800. Some say it was designed by James Gandon, the famed architect of the Customs House and the Four Courts. The handsome farmhouse sits on 105 acres of farmland on the Lucan Clonny Road at the edge of St Catherine's Park in an area known locally as Coldblow. 
It served as a family home for the Colgan family until the last decades of the 20th century, before being abandoned entirely. The subsequent years were not kind to Glenwood. Despite being a protected structure due to its architectural significance, the house was effectively a ruin by May 2018. Bottles and cans littered the floor, the result of the house's popularity among local teenagers seeking to avoid the prying eyes of parents and gardee. The roof had collapsed in several places and several rooms were completely gutted by fire. The house continued its decline even after it was purchased in 2003 for €10.5 million. In recent years, the company has been trying to get planning permission to turn it into a 62-bed nursing home, a plan welcomed by most locals who despaired that the once fine structure had become an eyesore. One group, Old Lucan, appealed to locals in January 2018 to contact Fingal County Council and ask it to enforce the building's protected structure status. There has been no update on the campaign or the owner's attempts to repurpose Glenwood since April 2018. We all know what happened there, one member of the old Lucan group wrote on its Facebook page recently. Once the trial is over, it should be knocked down and so should the adjacent buildings. On the morning of Thursday, May 17, 2018, Sergeant Declan Birchall and his specially trained four-person search team were deployed to an area of Lucan which included part of St Catherine's Park and Glenwood House. Working from maps and using a grid system, the team methodically searched the park, including all its hedgerows and ditches. Once they got to the large field beside the park, they used slash hooks to clear the way. At the end of the field stood Glenwood House. Birchall, like most local Gardaí, was familiar with the building, having responded to reports of teenagers messing there over the years. Birchall searched the outbuildings while his colleague Gartha Sean White went into the main house through the rear porch entrance. At the end of one of the corridors, at the front of the house, White looked into what would later be designated Room 1. It was dark inside, The windows were boarded up and the only light came from a hole in one of the planks on the windows. In the gloom, White thought he could make out a figure. He could definitely smell dried blood. The guard would later tell a colleague he believed he was either looking at a mannequin or something terrible. He called out but got no response. As per training, he stepped into the room to confirm what he saw and then he immediately left and called for assistance. Birchall rushed into the house when he heard White shout, Find! indicating he had located something of significance. As the search team leader, he entered room one to confirm what White believed he saw. Inside was Anna Creasel's body, naked, except for her black socks. At first, Birchall believed there was something covering Anna's face. When he leaned in closer, he realised it was her hair which was stuck to her face as if she had been thrashing it around. Her clothing and pieces of her iPhone were scattered around the room. Nearby was a cement block and a large stick, both of which were bloodstained. There was also blood staining on the walls and on the carpeted floor, 
it had clearly come from the many visible wounds on the girl's body. A long length of Tescon brand insulation tape was partially wrapped around her neck. She had three fingers inside the tape as if she was trying to get it off. Gardy quickly established a crime scene while awaiting the arrival of Superintendent John Gordon from Lucan Garda Station. A local GP was called to formally pronounce death and, within an hour, the Creasel family had been informed by their Garda liaison that Anna's body had been located. They were told they would have to attend the morgue that evening to make a formal identification. The missing persons investigation immediately became a murder investigation and Inspector O'Neill was appointed the senior investigating officer with 20 Gardaí working under him. For now, his job would be marshalling the many forensic and technical experts who would file in and out of Glenwood House for the next several days. Every inch of Room 1 would be examined and catalogued along with every beer can, cigarette butt and piece of debris in that room. The most pressing task was the pathology exam. State pathologist Professor Marie Cassidy, since retired, visited the location before overseeing the transport of the body via hearse to the State Pathology Laboratory in Whitehall, Dublin, for a full autopsy that evening. Anna had sustained a staggering amount of injuries. During the trial, Cassidy would spend about 40 minutes just listing the 50 injury sites. There were bruises and lacerations all over the body, but the most serious were to Anna's head, face and neck. Cassidy concluded Anna had died from blunt force trauma to the head and neck. There were also signs of compression to her neck, but there was no evidence this was caused by the tape. Other injuries suggested there had been penetration or attempted penetration of the vagina with something, but Cassidy could not determine what that something was. She also couldn't tell if Anna had been conscious at the time. On the basis of the pathology and forensic evidence, Garthy suspected Anna had been beaten to the ground with a heavy stick shortly after entering the room before being hit four times with a heavy object, such as a concrete block. She was then pulled towards the window where there was more light. It was likely here she was sexually assaulted. The presence of her false nails scattered around the room indicated she had fought her attacker fiercely. Despite the huge amount of forensic material at the scene, there was nothing immediately pointing towards a suspect. There were no fingerprints or blood belonging to anyone but Anna. However, scientists from Forensic Science Ireland, FSI, made a grim breakthrough when they examined Anna's top and discovered semen staining. The focus of the investigation immediately returned to the two boys. Gardy already had enough reason to suspect the boys due to the discrepancies in their accounts, but they wanted to wait for forensic proof at least one of them were at the scene. That came a few days later when FSI reported that Anna's blood was found on Boy A's boots, which had already been taken by Gardy investigating the allegation that he had been assaulted by two males in the park. As part of the assault investigation, Gardy had also taken the boy's phone. 
on it, they found more cause to suspect he was behind Anna's death. The phone contained a screenshot of a list of YouTube videos, including the 15 most gruesome torture methods in history, horror films that will blow everything away, and Until Dawn, get Jessica's clothes off. With Until Dawn being an apparent reference to a popular horror video game. There was a result for Jeff the Killer, a widely shared short story about a teenager who murders his family. On their own, these results could have been interpreted as reflecting the macabre but not entirely unexpected interests of a young teenage boy. But for Gardy, the presence on the phone of another search result for abandoned places in Lucan placed the items in a different light. That was the second instalment of Anna Creasel murder trial, The Complete Story. It was written by Connor Gallagher and read by Gronya Brookfield for Noah. You can continue listening to part three of this five-part series on the Noah app. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.